Hi, it's John here. This fall on Disruptors, we've been exploring some of the big topics around climate change and speaking with some of the big players who are seeking climate action. We call the series The Climate Conversations, and it's fair to say the conversations are ongoing. As part of that effort, we're bringing you special extended cuts of some of our most popular climate conversations. 2021 has been a pivotal year for our planet. Extreme weather put the need for climate action front and center, as did a high-profile global climate conference called COP26, which happened in Glasgow. Among those who played a critical role there was Mark Carney, a former governor of the Bank of Canada, who now serves as the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance. We talked with Mark about what he's been up to, as well as his hopes for global economic transformation in this conversation from earlier this fall. Mark Carney, welcome to Disruptors. John Stackhouse, a pleasure to be with you. I want to ask a question that uh, came to me this morning when I woke up, because this is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and there's much debate about how much it changed the world in different ways. And we're talking about climate. And I wonder why 20 years ago, the world galvanized around a horrific event and was able to mobilize, rightly or wrongly, trillions of dollars and mobilize nations, uh, as well as individual action, uh, to change the world. And arguably, we have not been able to mobilize the same will or resources on climate. I wonder how you think through our different collective approaches to global challenges. It's a great question, first. Uh, and if you recall the urgency of 20 years ago, and um, I think we all who lived through that had the same reflection. It's certainly the first thing I thought about this morning. Same weather uh, here today, very different global environment. Um, you know, there has been a lot of progress uh, over those 20 years, but, but let's focus on what hasn't been accomplished and how much more difficult it has become to galvanize global action, as you say. Um, and I think there's a couple of roots of that. Um, one was how quickly the global goodwill of the response to 9-11 was dissipated within a few years. Uh, the global, I mean, there were strong uh, support amongst the allies, but obviously uh, the Iraq war took a toll. And, you know, the retrospect, um, the stance that the Canadian government took at the time was a principled and, and, and the right stance uh, in retrospect, but that created a bit of a fissure as well in our relationship. And that played out more broadly across uh, a number of uh, a number of countries. I think the second thing, though, I'd underscore is we had the financial crisis. You and I know that well. We, from different vantage points, uh, lived and worked through that. And the response to the financial crisis, the policy response, was overwhelmingly an economic policy response. Uh, in the run up to two thousand seven eight, there was increasing focus on climate action at the global level. There. You know, the elements of the consensus of which you just spoke were there and within the private sector, an increasing focus. And uh, I would suggest in the financial sector as well. I, I, it didn't absolutely stop, but it was set back dramatically. Uh, the issues in the financial sector became survival. Uh, the issues from a public policy perspective became recovering from then what was then the worst uh, economic crisis of anyone's lifetime and had the prospect of moving into a depression if uh, the right policy hadn't been followed. And uh, that set back climate efforts um, almost a decade. Uh, we, we, in, in my judgment, we had lost decade. And I will say as well, John, that 
when we got back to the level of public urgency, maybe even arguably a greater public urgency around addressing climate in the run up to the start of 2020, governments starting to come together, the financial sector starting to focus on this more. And then, of course, we had the COVID uh, health crisis and economic uh, crisis associated with it. And I, given that history, thought, well, this is 50, you know, this could be history repeating itself and we'll be set back again. What's happened, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is has been the opposite. The experience of COVID um, and the economic circumstances and the right economic response, also social response, um, has galvanized climate action. So we are in why, a different why, why place. Why is it different this time? Uh, why, why, are, why, is it not, why is climate not relegated by yet another global crisis? Well, uh, yeah, I think there's several factors. Um, one of them is, uh, I'll, I'll start with the negative, which is that it's 10 years later and it's that much later. It's that much more obvious, the climate impacts. Um, it's that much more urgent. That's the first. The second is that technology has moved on quite substantially. So many more of the opportunities are economic today. It's a question of will and getting capital to work and investment in the ground. That I mean, I'm not saying that we've got all the solutions at an economic level to fully decarbonized, but there is a path for the, at least the next decade for substantial progress. That makes a big difference. I think thirdly, a number of governments, and informally I've been involved in uh, these discussions with a number of governments, they took a lesson from, you know, a few countries had a climate-focused uh, response to 2008, South Korea, elements of China, elements of the German uh, fiscal response. And lo and behold, those countries established quite competitive positions, very competitive positions in key industries, solar, wind as well. So the economic congruence, if I can say it that way, the, the alignment is much better uh, now and it's much better understood. And I think the last thing, uh, which is a a softer point, if you will, or a values point in many respects, that's a harder point, a stronger point, is what lessons do you take from, from the health crisis? We undervalued resilience. We didn't prepare for something that wasn't just a possibility. It was a certainty. Uh, and there are ample warnings. So we undervalued resilience. Uh, we didn't listen enough to science. We didn't think about sustainability. And by and large, and you know there are exceptions to this, but by and large, people's response to COVID was one of solidarity. They did what they needed to do, not just for themselves and their families, but for others. And of course, all of those elements, resilience, sustainability, solidarity, those values are what's necessary to properly address climate. And if I go back, if you allow me to go back to my first point, which is the economic shifting, well, actually, you can marry them with jobs, growth, dynamism of the economy if, 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 you, uh, if you bring it together. So we're in a different situation now, fortunately, and I think our individual and collective responsibility is to harness that as much as possible. Let's talk about values. That's, of course, the title of your book, which I read with great interest. It's an excellent book for those who haven't read it, uh, and a very serious book, uh, and I mean that in a complimentary way. I read it concurrently with the Bill Gates book and wrestled with similarities and differences. I think you, you agree on many, many things. But stepping back, I found Gates, and this shouldn't be surprising perhaps for a math guy like him, uh, took a very technological approach. That's what we would expect from Bill Gates. It was almost Cartesian that this is a problem that can be solved. And you, you take a more, bit more of a moralistic uh, point, if I can put it that way, kind of Hobbesian. Uh, and as I 
compared and contrasted the two works, I thought, and this is oversimplifying it, but there's a real tension between man and machine, both in the cause of the climate crisis, but also in the solutions. And there are some, and one can uh, question Gates on this, who believe this is a technological problem that can be solved. And there are others who think, no, this is a human challenge. This is a behavioral issue. And I wonder how you, uh, of course, it's both, um, but how you balance those two, because a lot of people would like technology to solve this. We'd all like technology to solve it, as with COVID, as with everything. It's just easier if we have a machine or a device that can take care of a problem. Uh, We are harder to solve, uh, we humans. But I wonder how you, you know, know, in the balance are, are, are weighing technology and human behavior as we get deeper into trying to solve this crisis. Yeah, the way I look at it, as you say, John, it's it's both, and I'd argue it's there's it's a triangle, and I I I think we've talked about this a bit in the past, and it's a bit of it's in the book, which is that we need three technologies in order to solve this. We need the engineering technologies, and I referenced a moment ago that some of them are fully economic, profitable today: wind, solar, uh, increasingly on the storage side, prospectively on hydrogen. They're economic today, but we need those, and I'll use Bill Gates's terms, breakthrough technologies, um, elements of green hydrogen, sustainable aviation uh, fuels, direct air capture, and even large-scale carbon capture, That you know, which uh, is a big issue for Canada. Uh, we need those to become economic. Um, so we need the engineers, we need the technological solutions. My argument or my perspective would be the scale of what's required for those means that they won't just happen. And they certainly won't just happen in a timely fashion uh, to address the issue given the limited carbon budget. So we also need political technology, and that's an odd phrase, but um, just to keep the the, the structure, uh, we need that consensus, which people have developed by and large. You see voting patterns, polling patterns, not just in Canada, but elsewhere. You know, that consensus is coming together and different political parties or political groups in different countries have different ways of mapping that to addressing the climate crisis in terms of what policies would be. But you need that consensus. And what I argue in the book and what I really believe, of course, I believe it, but is that when you get a consensus around something like sustainability um, and you move out of a trade-off of planet and profit and you know, sustainability today versus tomorrow, and people say, no, we want the climate crisis addressed, we expect our businesses, our governments, our financial institutions to be addressing this, this changes the value equation. It means that it is valuable to do things that reduce our carbon footprint, that move us towards net zero. And it becomes not just risky, but actively harmful to the viability of a business if you're still part of the problem, if you're not moving. And that gets to the third leg of the triangle, uh, which is financial technology. And that's a lot of what the work I've been doing uh, for the UN and run up to the Glasgow COP, which is, and you've been helping with this as an institution, is to put in place the plumbing of the system so that there's proper disclosure about who's part of the solution, who's still part of the problem, that there's new markets that help to invest in not just the breakthrough technologies, but uh, carbon offsets and other things that are necessary to optimize the um, 
carbon budget to have bigger capital flows into emerging economies, creating those, um, but also to have the commitments of the financial institutions and with that, the transparency about what they're doing to solve the problem. And I've talked to you know Bill Gates about this uh, a few times, and I think there's a recognition that uh, you know, this is comparative advantage, right? Uh, not surprisingly, I, I, you wouldn't want me focused on the technologies of the future. I'm much better focused on uh, uh, trying to help the financial system get into place. Uh, and Bill and others absolutely uh, invest, identifying the technological needs and investing in those. And, and if I can make one last point, just to put this in context, um, you know, direct air capture, which is a technology where, you know, we've got a great company, a Canadian company, Carbon Engineering, one of the leaders. It's still a very expensive technology uh, relative to a ton of carbon taken out of the air. That said, very little money has been put into that area. And by thinking all the way through the decarbonization chain, if I can put it that way, from solar and wind that's economic today to direct air capture, which arguably has to be part of the solution uh, tomorrow, we're shining a light on where money needs to go. And if you're a venture capitalist, a growth equity, an entrepreneur, and to some extent a government for primary research, well, you should be focused on those technologies of the next decade. The private sector can take care of the technologies of this decade uh, at scale. One of the questions you get into uh, in the book is around capitalism and whether capitalism is fit for this crisis. Uh, and of course, there's many models and uh, uh, executions of capitalism. Uh, it's not a, a, a monolith. But I wonder how your thinking is evolving coming out of this crisis where we have mobilized trillions of dollars, uh, and it wasn't capitalism, it was the state that mobilized that largely to uh, avert an even greater crisis. I wonder what that tells us about the limitations of capitalism to solve these epic challenges uh, and the tragedies of the horizon, as you call them in, in, in the book, but also what the strengths are of capitalism that, uh, that, that we need to hang on to or even invest more in. Well, a moment ago, you, you referenced Hobbes um, and, and rightly so. So, you know, one of the points he made, obviously, is the fundamental role of the state is, to pro is protection. Uh, and in his day and age, it was protection from war and and violence within uh, within society. So the state has a monopoly on violence, it, uh, uh, if you will, as well. That's his terminology. Um, so it runs the police force, runs the uh, the army, etc. And that's the implicit social contract with individuals. And if the state doesn't do its job, you, you replace those who are running the state. Now the idea of protection. Um, has extended over the centuries. Uh, it, it extends to financial stability, uh, interestingly enough. So again, our world, if I can rope you into mine, um, where we do expect the Bank of Canada, we do expect uh, the regulators to be thinking about the big risks. Obviously, we expect the major financial institutions as well, but you know, the core bits of the state uh, have an overarching responsibility to think about those. And, and act on them appropriately, organize ourselves so that if the U.S. blows up as it did, Canada, I mean, we can't avoid some aftershocks, but our system doesn't go down, which it did not. The same thing applies to uh, pandemic preparedness where the state has fallen down and now the, the effort is, okay, how do we organize ourselves in order to be prepared for the next health crisis have adequate capacity, have action, work on a global level as well as a local level. Um, and 
So th- there's some lessons there that is not going to be provided by the market. That's the, those are roles of the state. And within climate, um, what it, what's the a- analog? Well, part of what the state has to do, and we're moving in this direction in Canada, to, you know, to the credit, is have a clear objective. First point, net zero by 2050. Have a medium term objective. You know how to run a business. You know, it's great to have a long term objective. What about a medium term objective and marking progress? So we have a 2030 objective, 40 to 45 percent, or at least that's as we're speaking today. That's that's Canada's objective. Measure progress annually, but also put in place the policies in order to get there and have a degree of credibility and predictability about those policies. And so the classic example in Canada, and I think I use this example globally, is is the carbon price. We have a legislated carbon price that runs to $170 by 2030. And that gives predictability for businesses and investors and individuals to start adjusting today. You know, no internal combustion engine vehicles, new ones. Uh, by 2035. Again, our auto sector, you see it responding today. It's going to mean we're more competitive uh, in um, auto manufacturing as a consequence. So the state plays an important role, but you start to see, and hopefully in my answer, where the state's actions fulfilling its fundamental role, in this case on climate, starts to provide a path or some certainty. So then the market and capitalism, as you were terming it, can step in and really provide the solutions. And of course, the best elements of state intervention provide flexibility for the market to find a better way of, uh, you know, in a world with $170 carbon price, well, what's the what's the right answer to deliver energy or, or um, uh, to heat a building? Well, let's have the market figure it out within that context and not, not overly dictate it. Because the one thing I think we know is that the scale of the problem is such that we need many, many solutions. And there's probably some of them that um, seem somewhat unlikely at this stage, but uh, uh, smarter people and more energetic people can make them happen. Coming up after the break, more of my conversation with Mark Carney. So stay right there. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm Trin Teresa Doe. Earlier this fall, RBC Economics and Thought Leadership released a report called The $2 Trillion Transition, Canada's Road to Net Zero. It explores the costs and benefits of Canada's shift to a carbon neutral economy and how it can fuel a new generation of Canadian innovation, from carbon capture technology to sustainable agriculture to the full potential of supercharging electric vehicles. We look at all the ways for Canada to take a leading role in the fight for climate action and the economic opportunities they create. To learn more, check out the link in the show notes of this episode and visit rbc.com slash net zero. And be sure to listen to and follow Disruptors wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. In the second half of my conversation with Mark Carney, we talk about some of the daunting timelines facing the world as we try to stem decades worth of damage brought by climate change. And we also talk about the important role Canada can and should play in the fight for climate action. 
timelines, as you've put quite eloquently, are critical to this. We don't have centuries, certainly. But there's an important tension underway in the world, I would argue, around uh, around timelines. When I uh, talk to my uh, environmentalist friends, I often divide them into two camps, the 2030 camp and the 2050 camp. And the 2030 camp are people who say, we, we can't really think too much about net zero by 2050 the crisis has to be solved by 2030 by getting emissions down by 40 or 50% in that range. And then the 2050 camp are those, and you know, I've heard Bill Gates speak to, to this, who say, let's, let's not undermine the 30-year journey by trying to do too much in the 10-year, now it's a eight-year journey to 2030. So maybe we'll fall a bit short. Of, of 2030, but the real need is to get on the right path to 2050. And hey, it'd be great to have both, but uh, just don't let one undermine the other. Are you a, a, a 2050-er or a 2030-er? <laughs> uh, are you going to be Canadian and say you're 2040? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm more of a 2030-er. I think that, I mean, experience in managing things to the extent I have, and I have some, is that you need objectives that are within your your timeline of responsibility, let's put it that way, uh, that you're going to live to live for the consequences. Um, now, that's first reason. The second, uh, just given how tight the carbon budget is, uh, it is it is essential. Uh, I think the third point I'll make, um, which is tangential to this, but I just want to make it, which is some in the 2030 camp, maybe not those you've talked to, but uh, take the view of, okay, well, we just need to radically change and shut down a variety of things. I think the lesson of the last 18 months is we're not going to shrink our way to net zero. Uh, you know, we shut down a quarter of the global economy effectively, maybe more, and only just met that 7% uh, annual reduction. Uh, we're not going to shut down another quarter of our economy and then another and another. I mean, so we need to invest at scale uh, uh, to grow. The The caveat I'd put to the 2050 camp uh, and the Gates camp is that when you have S-curve adoptions, uh, you don't necessarily have to be a third of the way to where you need to be from a technology rollout. Uh, because of the, um, the the compounding effect of uh, as as new technology spreads, so uh, the fact that getting into the teens uh, percentage of vehicles that are electric vehicles in the latter bit of this decade that is consistent with and and that reinforced by government policy and the reworking of the capital stock in the in the auto industry that will be consistent with getting to where we need to which is uh, you know zero emission fleet look we need to we need to deliver this uh, all of us you know play separate you know related roles in it in a way that's growing the economy we absolutely need to grow the economy and do that and build the confidence i think we can i think particularly in canada i think it's been underplayed to be candid, uh, just the scale of investment that will come with a clean grid by 2035, the reworking of our auto sector, the efforts out, uh, you know, in my home province um, to um, uh, move to net zero emissions for scope one, scope two emissions for the oil sand. I mean, that's a $50 billion investment program, at least, uh, if not more, uh, with big knock-on effects uh, for jobs, positive knock-on effects for jobs. So, I, I, we now we need to deliver on that in our own ways. Uh, but as the confidence builds that this is part of our economic future as well as our 
environmental future uh, will will hold the coalition behind. Well, let's 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 talk about some of the systems adjustments or changes that uh, can 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 get us there. You've talked about the opportunity. We have uh, uh, a piece of research from RBC Economics looking at the net zero pathways for Canada and estimating it to be a $2 trillion project over 30 years for the country. In other words, it's going to require $2 trillion of investment, public and private. This is not uh, all to, uh, to be spent by, by government. And that's a big number, but it actually breaks down in uh, fairly manageable ways. It's 2 to 3% of GDP. Uh, we allocate 2 to 3% of GDP to, uh, to a number of things that are of great value to society. And there's lots of ways we can do that even more effectively by mobilizing private capital uh, to be a, a significant chunk of that, uh, of that $2 trillion. And of course, the $2 trillion is going to lead to a lot of new companies, new jobs, new even new sectors uh, if Canada gets things, uh, gets things right. What do we need to get right in terms of the systems? Uh, and that includes the money flows. How do we get that $2 trillion uh, in a mo- the most efficient, effective way to the folks who can uh, invest it optimally for themselves, but also for society? Normally, for capital expenditure, about 60% or so, a little more, is internally funded by companies. You know, they're making a profit, they're making cash flows, and they reinvest that in their business. And the question will be for a variety of our businesses, our big energy companies, um, our big automakers, as two examples, or tech companies as well, how much of their money are they reinvesting in decarbonizing and becoming more carbon competitive? It will be a very important signal because, of course, the less they're investing in that, the more they're running off their business because in the end, they're going to need to be at net zero uh, uh, to, uh, you know, consistent with the rest of the country. So a reasonable proportion of this, not all um, businesses will, will, for this will make sense, but a reasonable proportion of this will come from business themselves as other capital expenditure does. The second thing is that clearly the bulk of it will need to come from private finance. Um, I can make a case for, and there is a case absolutely for government spending uh, in newer technologies and kickstarting things and knitting grid inner ties together, for example, in the electricity sector, there'll be other examples. But the bulk of it has to come from the private sector. And there will be an expectation that those returns are market returns, um, that they're consistent with, you know, on a, on a risk adjusted basis, they are consistent with, uh, returns that have been seen in the past. That is feasible. I'll, I'll, I'll put, put it this way. Let me, let me answer on a global basis and then come back. Well, I'm going to make a global point and a macro point just gratuitously, which is that orders of magnitude internationally, uh, you take the whole world, th- the numbers are similar to your numbers, if not slightly bigger. Um, probably two, two and a half percentage points of additional annual investment per year. If that were to happen, that would take up the so-called savings glut that has built up over the course of the last 20 years. One of the, as you know well, John, one of the things that's developed is that people have been saving more investment as a whole. Hard investment has been lower than in the past. And that's one of the reasons why global interest rates are so low and that's a whole other set of topics, but this is actually something that is manageable globally, but actually has a knock-on effect 
all things being equal, of raising global interest rates to rates that, you know, listeners would be, most would be more familiar with historically, maybe not all the way there, but half of the way there, and giving some returns to, uh, to individuals on, on, risk, uh, on risk-free investments, on their savings accounts, on their, on their government bonds. Now, governments, by the way, have to prepare for that. Uh, they can't take the current situation for granted. So uh, the short answer is too late for a short answer, but the short answer to your question is, a chunk will come from the companies themselves. That's what happens uh, in the past. And particularly if they see it as an imperative for their competitiveness and their viability of their businesses. But uh, the bulk will need to come from the private financial uh, sector, the banks, the big insurance companies, our, ourselves through uh, you know, our RSP investments and others. Uh, and that will make sense in a world that values sustainability in a policy environment that's consistent with moving towards net zero. That will be uh, that will be uh, profitable uh, for those individuals. You, you get to see Canada both as a Canadian on Canadian soil, but also uh, from a from a global perch. How does the world in 2021 see Canada? The world sees Canada in different ways, and it's it's a little hard as an insider, as a Canadian, to add this up and balance it. Uh, but there's a couple of lenses through which we're seen. Uh, we are seen as relatively, uh, from a climate perspective, uh, we're seen as a very carbon intensive uh, economy and uh, a need to, um, like everybody, but maybe even as more, more than others, to make a concerted effort to get that down. First, first thing, that's, uh, that's, that's a perspective. The second thing is that we are seen as having a number of the solutions. Um, so I mentioned the carbon uh, price. That's seen as world leading in terms of the approach. We're seen as having a number of the technological uh, solutions um, and expertise and innovation and drive. And that goes from a, you know, carbon pure and cement to carbon engineering and direct air capture to a very, very long legacy of innovation in our core energy industry, uh, oil and gas uh, sector and others. And, uh, you know, there's an imperative for that to be continued at scale and at pace, uh, but we are seen to have that build up. We're also seen as one of the more constructive international players, if I can put it that way, uh, you know, are helping to build the system and recognize that the world needs to move forward together in order to solve this. Uh, so I, you know, I'm biased because I'm Canadian. So I'm going to say that the balance sheet is pretty positive. The, the judgment of us, and by the way, our financial sector scene is very sophisticated and, uh, particularly our pension funds and our institutions seen as very welcome partners internationally and in being part of the part of the solution here. Uh, so to, you know, to bring it together, I'm biased. So I see that on net we're viewed positively, but everybody is going to be judged by results. And, you know, the exam time is over the course of this decade. And so everything that we're all doing in the end, this is an issue that there's no style points on climate change, right? In the end, you're either getting emissions down or you're not. Uh, and if you're getting them down or you're doing it in a way that's, you know, growing your economies and others. And we, we've, we, you know, look, we've got challenges. Uh, I think we all know that, you know, let's get them out in the open, which I think we're increasingly doing. Let's get our best people on it and, and get moving. What are the two or three most important things the country can do in the next uh, 24 months? I, I'd say the following. One, I'd lock down those 
2030, 2035 hard commitments. So the on the auto side, on the electricity side, I think that's an imperative. I think the the initiative in the uh, in the oil sands, the net zero oil sands, uh, the private initiative, uh, making that fully tangible, credible, moving it forward and, and, and appropriately scaled. I think having the whole of the financial sector organized for net zero and being transparent about being organized to net zero as a necessary facilitator of that. And, you know, look, we can't we can't be moving backwards on on anything as well. I think that that's another point. As soon as you establish a reputation for stop start on climate policy, people will focus elsewhere. If you establish a reputation that uh, climate policies, uh, A, it's headed in the right direction and the market can anticipate the future, entrepreneurs, innovators, uh, you know, investors, uh, banks, others, they'll put money behind the future um, and uh, we'll get there faster. This was outstanding, Mark. Thank you. My pleasure. No, it's great pleasure, John. That was Mark Carney, former Bank of Canada governor and the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance. Stay with us in the weeks ahead for more extended cuts of our most popular interviews from the Climate Conversations, a special multi-part series on disruptors. To hear the complete series, go to rbc.com disruptors. Until next time, I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks for listening. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.